Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to a pro-life intellectual, author, and former communist about the state of the abortion wars here in the United States, how we got here, and what the last several decades have been like. That's coming right up. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us again this week. Today, we're going to be talking to Marvin Alasky, the author of over 20 books, the editor-in-chief of World Magazine, a former communist, and the author of several essential and important books, not only on abortion, but on the American abortion wars, how abortion has impacted American history, and what things not only look like over the past several decades, but going forward. I've been reading Marvin Alasky's book books for years. They were some of the first books given to me about abortion in my own career as as a pro-life activist, and I've wanted to have him on the show for quite some time. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right. The, the first question I want to ask you, and I, and I hadn't originally planned to ask you this question, but I noticed going through your bio just uh, prior to the interview that you actually were a communist for a while. Tell us about this transition from <laughs> communism into being one of the most recognized pro-life authors during the late 80s and 90s. Well, yeah, try to keep it short here. I grew up in Judaism, and as is unfortunately pretty typical these days, uh, bar mitzvah 13, atheist 14. So as an atheist, I kept moving uh, further and further to the left, Marxism, communism, joined the Communist Party in 1972 um, after being involved in a variety of uh, anti-war stuff and and poverty demonstrations. Um, And, well, uh, God intervened. Uh, I came to believe over the three years from 1973 to 1976 that a god of some kind existed. I came to believe this really not through any concentrated um, study, but basically God demolishing my pretenses and through a variety of providential circumstances coming to learn more about him, none of which I designed or planned myself. Uh, for example, and I'll just give you two quick examples. Um, I was uh, doing graduate. I was in graduate school at the uh, University of Michigan, and to get a PhD, you have to have a good reading knowledge of a foreign language. Uh, my language was Russian that I had uh, learned some of. I had uh, traveled across the Pacific on a Soviet freighter, and then across the Soviet Union, Trans-Siberian Railroad, planning to become uh, essentially a, a Soviet agent, but um, God intervened. I had enough Russian to keep working at it, and uh, one time, just in my room, I um, looked up. I was I was trying to get some uh, reading practice in Russian, and I had a copy of the New Testament in Russian that had been given to me a couple of years before, and I held on to it as kind of a souvenir item, an oddity, and just started reading through it, and it just blew me away that uh, I. I thought this was not something that that man through our own minds had devised. This was something coming from God. That impressed me. But again, I wasn't doing it to be impressed. I was doing it to study Russian, and that uh, I learned a lot in the process. I had to teach a course. I was assigned to teach a course in early American literature as a graduate student, 
none of the regular professors wanted to teach that. Uh, they wanted to teach exotic subjects, so it felt to me to do it because it was still in the in the uh, curriculum. Uh, what was early American literature? Puritan sermons. So these dead white males from 300 years ago were preaching to me. Um, you know, I, gr- I grew up, I think, believing that Christians were were stupid. Uh, the Puritans, these divines, certainly were not stupid. So they impressed me. And over several years, uh, other things happened. I won't go through the details now, but I ended up in 1976 professing faith in Christ and joining a church. And uh, you know, through God's grace, that's where I have been for the past 43 years. And uh, I hope to, to continue. So that that's a, a rather whirlwind summary, and there's a, a few threads I'm tempted to pull out there. But I guess for the purpose of, of this discussion, um, when did you first become aware of the abortion issue, and what was your first introduction to the pro-life movement? Well, I first became aware of it. Um, I was an undergraduate at, uh, at Yale, and I remember one uh, one class where there was a discussion of this, and uh, this was, you know, the, the pro-abortion movement was starting to take off in the late in the late 60s, and it was very clear, as I recall from that discussion, that all, all uh, thoughtful uh, people were on the pro-abortion side, and everything else was just superstition, because, you know, we are, we are uh, creatures of uh, material only. Uh, there's a struggle for survival. The weak, as we learned from Charles Darwin and others, uh, would not really survive, and so be it. Uh, better off for the for the progress of uh, of humanity that uh, little children, unborn kids, or uh, lobules, little pieces of matter, would get out of the way when their uh, parents were. Uh, unable or unwilling to take care of them. There would be a drain in our society, so get rid of them. So that was really my, my thinking. Uh, um, it was also certainly convenient for guys uh, right. in college and graduate school. Uh, you know, I, I certainly thought that uh, as I uh, committed adultery and so forth, if there were any problems, then, uh, you know, the... Uh, the women were responsible for taking care of it, so uh, yeah, it was it was ideological, but also also convenient. Sort of the the playboy philosophy was uh, was is, was very convenient in that way, and abortion fit very well in it. So yeah, that's what I was thinking, and um, I almost in um, in graduate school when I was thinking of dissertation topics, I was almost going to write one on population control. Uh, overpopulation and so forth, and uh, that certainly would have led me further down the pro-abortion path, but I did not do that to other things, and, um, you know, kept, well, just thinking this through here, because uh, I really I really haven't thought about what I believed, I haven't thought a lot about what I believed about abortion at that point, but um, I certainly saw it as convenient, I certainly saw it as, as as the right thing to do in in macro terms, and then I probably didn't think about it at all uh, for for several years. The the personal situation, I'm thankful to God for that, never never came up uh, where I had to 
push abortion for, for personal reasons. So it was off in the distance. I suspect in January 1973, um, as I recall, I didn't, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but I was glad of the Roe v. Wade decision. And not until I uh, got married in, in 1976, uh, and my wife and I, both as baby Christians, uh, started going to church and thinking about it, did we actually take this seriously? We were in uh, in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, I, I was a speechwriter for executives at the DuPont Company for about five years. We were in a, an Orthodox Presbyterian church there, and uh, this is where we started to hear about it. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly how, but... Um, it seemed ju- just as as reasonable and uh, righteous in an atheistic sense as abortion seemed to me when I was a communist. It now all seemed to be wrong uh, because I had a sense of of God creating us, God God creating every individual person. So, don't think I really thought it through in any kind of intellectual way, but but um, it just seemed it just seemed wrong. And it seemed wrong to my wife. She became a volunteer counselor at uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center in Delaware. This was this was right near the beginning of the Crisis Pregnancy Center movement. Right. Uh, you know, about I think she got involved in that in 1981. So she was a counselor. Um, after writing speeches for five years, I wanted to do some writing of my own. Uh, University of Texas offered me a job, so I went. So we moved to uh, Texas. We had. At that point, two children of our own, and we then uh, um, uh, had had born two two more. Um, so we were, we were there, and I thought we were going to Austin to so I could teach at the University of Texas. Um, I think what God really had in store was uh, my wife. Uh, after her experience in Delaware, we came to Austin, where there was a very pro-abortion city, and there was no crisis pregnancy center. So she started one in 1984, uh, got it rolling, uh, chaired it for a while, and it's still going. I'm, um, I think that was that was the reason God brought us to Austin, and I'm very grateful for that. So uh, she was involved in uh, uh, setting up the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and I was involved teaching history uh, in a journalism department, and... Um, started wondering what the history of abortion was and started doing some research and writing some articles, uh, several of them co-authored with her. I mean, she was the one who really, who really led me into, into actual practice. I, I chaired the Crisis Pregnancy Center for a while after, after she was done with that and then writing about it and getting into the history of abortion. So, yeah, both, both in practice and, uh, uh, and then writing. Uh, and then also we... Um, uh, we we uh, uh, were involved at this point in the 1980s. There were uh, folks emphasizing the importance of of uh, which which was then true then and still true now of of bringing pregnant women into our homes if their parents and boyfriends kicked them out. Uh, where were they to go? So we actually had uh, you know uh, one. One woman who lived with us for nine months and uh, and bore her child very very bravely, um, and you know so we were so we were involved in a, in a lot of ways like that, both personally and in terms of 
uh, nonprofit activities with the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and then writing. So when I look at, at the dates that your your books were being published, right, uh, Prodigal Press, The Anti-Christian Bias of American News Media came out in 1988, as did The Press and Abortion, 1838 to 1988. And these books on the history of, of the American nation, of American Christianity, of uh, the slow move towards a bias against those things were, were taking place um, against the backdrop of a rising religious right. And you were... Uh, more peripherally involved, but yet still involved. What are your, your memories of, of the rise of the religious right, Operation Rescue, uh, the more aggressive tactics that the movement took uh, in those days, especially as while this was unfolding, you were looking at the last you know hundred years or more of what had taken place preceding this all? Right. Well, I really wasn't involved politically with the religious right at all. Uh, during the during the 1980s, um, so as I as I think back at it, uh, it was really history and coming to some conclusions from some conclusions from the history. Uh, one that I that I learned about uh, is that there was a lot of abortion uh, back well before Roe v. Wade. So it wasn't as if the problem just began in 1973. Uh, you go you go back to Colonial times, and there were some abortions, mostly infanticide, but some abortions, and then really developed with the growth of cities and the spread of prostitution in the 1830s. Uh, prostitutes had lots of abortions. There was a, a spiritist movement that became very strong in the United States in the 1850s, uh, and a lot of those folks, for a mixture of theological reasons and, and just personal preferences and satisfactions, a lot of abortions there. Uh, urbanization, uh, lots of abortions. I mean, the old story of, uh, you know, the, uh, the factory owner or the son of the factory owner, uh, seducing and then abandoning a young woman coming off the farms and, uh, not having any friends and, uh, falling into the, into the clutches of a person who just wanted to use her for his own satisfaction. So lots of abortions there. Uh, that's the, that's the history I was learning. Uh, and that cut, a, that cut across some of our tendency to think the good old days were wonderful and it all just started with Roe v. Wade. Um, another thing that I learned from history is the important role of the press. And again, I was, I was uh, uh, writing, I mean, as a journalist and a columnist, and so I was very interested in this, but, you know, just seeing the way in the 19th century, uh, the uh, New York Times, under first under the editorship of Henry Raymond, who was a uh, a thoughtful Presbyterian guy, uh, and then his successors, the New York Times, really led the led the battle against abortion. Uh, the Times started in 1851. There was some of that through the 1850s and the 1860s, but it really picked up in 1871. The New York Times had uh, an article called "The Evil of the Age." They sent a reporter uh, named St. Clair undercover into abortion businesses. So I wrote about that and, and saw the importance of that. At the same time, newspapers were exposing the abortionists and uh, often in very direct and clear ways. They, they did not shilly-shally about, about this evil of the age. Uh, a lot of other newspapers, including those newspapers that in their, on their, in their, newspaper, in their news columns were uh, criticizing abortion, they also were getting money by abortionists who 
uh, who set up, uh, who, uh, who created very thinly veiled ads uh, for abortion after, you know, stoppage of, of menses. And, well, what's the reason the menses stops? Well, it's because pregnancy. Right. What do you do about it? Well, you take, you take some uh, art abortifacient. Abortion, well, um, um, there, are, there are a lot of, I, I won't go into the details here, but, you know, you take something, it's very similar in these to, uh, in some ways, RU486 today, uh, and, well, you know, a lot of women were getting, were getting uh, uh, chemical abortions in that way, there were surgical abortions, so there was lots of it, and newspapers were busy in exposing it. So that was the second big thing, the, uh, the role of the press, and then the way the press turned around starting early in the 20th century, but then building and building and building in the 1950s and the 1960s. So that was another part of the story that, that uh, uh, both both positively and negatively, uh, uh, media were, were crucial in the, in the uh, uh, early expansion, then contraction, and then expansion again of abortion. Um, a third thing I learned, and again, this is largely by reading old newspapers and old accounts and Right. reading uh, testimony from physicians, sermons, a whole lot of stuff that eventually went into these, these two books that I wrote that started out as articles in, in the academic journals, uh, the, the role of compassion. The, um, in the late 19th century, Christians were, were highly involved in developing ministries and charities to uh, help pregnant women in lots of ways, uh, including the uh, places where where they could go to have their children, and often these places did not have um, did not have nice names. You know, one of my one of the places I learned about the most and, and read the records of was called the Airing E R R I N G, the Airing Women's Refuge. Oh. Uh, and yeah, I remember spending a couple of days in the uh, um, the Chicago Historical Society just reading the the monthly records over 20 years from a woman named Helen Mercy Woods. Uh, this this home for uh, for wayward women, uh, as they put it in those days. So, you know, and then the and then the uh, the ways to try to uh, help women not to get pregnant, including uh, when they came into cities from the farm for jobs, uh, places they could stay, uh, where which would be safe. Uh, entertainment, so they wouldn't just be so uh, emotionally starved and bored that uh, some guy could come along and and uh, uh, and get them into trouble. Uh, a whole lot of things, just uh, uh, many, 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 many different things that were not not exactly like our crisis pregnancy centers these days, but uh, but similar in some ways, and and emphasizing uh, compassion. So I think those are the three. The three main lessons I learned from the research: uh, there was lots of abortion, uh, there was uh, a lot of press activity, and there was a lot of compassionate activity. What was the primary thesis of your 1992 book, "Abortion Rights," spelled R-I-T-E-S, a social history of abortion in America? I know compassion was a key part of that, um, but this book I, I created quite a splash at the time when it was released. Well, it made a splash, um, but of an unusual kind. Uh, I was on leave for two years from the University of Texas, and uh, 
my family and I, we lived in, in Washington, and I spent a lot of time in the Library of Congress. And out of that came two books. And the the um, the reception of the books was was very different, and I and I eventually figured out why. Uh, the first book was American Passion, and it was a history of poverty fighting in America, right. uh, and looked at the way uh, we fought poverty pretty successfully, uh, starting in colonial days, but up in the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't government led. It was it was uh, um, it was compassion, basically, uh, and churches and synagogues and private charities uh, helping people who were poor. Uh, I won't go through the whole history here, but that book had a real constituency because uh, there was a big debate at the time about welfare reform, and this book was, was saying and showing historically uh, how, without the government being involved, uh, uh, Americans... Uh, help the poor and help people come out of poverty and actually work better than than our war in poverty the past fifty years now um, largely government led and and largely uh, uh, enabling people to stay in poverty rather than uh, helping them through um, uh, personal help uh, challenging help spiritual help to come out of it so you could see there was a natural constituency for there in a sense you know uh, Small government people loved it. Uh, big government people hated it. And uh, it eventually uh, sold lots of copies and probably had an impact on the, uh, on the welfare debates of the, of the uh, 1990s. Then, same process of spending a lot of time in the Library of Congress reading old records, uh, you know, with a, with a stacks pass, uh, uh, going into the stacks and reading these documents that uh, literally blowing dust off and they just sat on shelves for perhaps decades and just reading about what what people did and developing compassionate approaches. Uh, that and that led to this to this abortion book, Abortion Rights, uh, R I T yes. But the reception of that was very different because it did not have a natural constituency. People on the pro abort side uh, disliked it because it was coming from a pro life position. But a lot of people on the pro-life side also didn't like it because uh, what I what I teased out through looking at these uh, uh, reports from the early 19th century is that there was lots of abortion back then. And folks on our side, it complicated the matter. Uh, there was lots of abortion back then. And I also concluded that, that law certainly contributes to it. Uh, the development of... of uh, some legal action in the, you know, starting a little bit uh, early in the century, but then stepping up a lot in the 1870s. Yeah, that helped, but I don't think it was really crucial. Uh, the uh, because because we, even when there there were strong uh, anti-abortion laws, uh, they weren't enforced all that often. Uh, it was difficult at that time, in terms of a court of law, to. Uh, well, not just difficult, but but uh, virtually impossible in a court of law to show to the satisfaction of a jury that up before four and a half months or so before quickening, uh, the woman actually was proven to be pregnant. So, you know, a lot of a lot of abortions were occurring, uh, and and legal action could help, but I don't think it was all that crucial. And our side really did not want to hear that. 
because we focused on Roe v. Wade, we focused on, on legal change uh, more than cultural change. So it did not have a real constituency among among pro-life people either. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of my my orphan book in a way. I think it languished because uh, it did not just have it did not have a natural constituency pushing it as the book on poverty fighting and welfare had. When you look at what you discovered uh, for your books, because I, I think that most people, even most people in the pro-life movement, are not particularly aware of the, the history of abortion prior to Roe, which is why I thought Daniel K. Williams' book was so valuable. And and, and, and for, for many young pro-lifers, the 80s and the early 90s were a long time ago already. Uh, many of them will not have any conscious memories of, of, of the rescue movement and all these other movements that came up during that time. But based on what you've read and having a, you know the, a context that goes, well, I've read some of your essays that go all the way back to the time of the Puritans. What sort of mistakes and what sort of uh, successes do you think the pro-life movement had in the you know from the mid '80s to coming up to the Bush presidency? Uh, Bush, Bush one or Bush two? Bush too. Okay. Um, well, there's there's a there's another part of the story that I touched on a few years ago in one article, but have never really developed fully. The in the late '80s with Operation Rescue, and you know, I knew a lot of our people uh, thought they were uh, genuine and gutsy. But I don't think overall it helped. Uh, it may it may have helped. I mean, and, and by the testimony, it may it may have helped uh, uh, some women who uh, had more time to think about it. Uh, there are, there are babies who were born because of Operation Rescue, uh, who otherwise probably would not have been born. So it was it was it was uh, a, a great thing in that way. But in terms of public opinion, it probably really set things back. And thus, it probably, you know, you, you don't know about these things, but it, it probably ended up uh, as, a, as a net loss in terms of saving lives. Uh, because uh, the, the uh, pro-life movement started to be characterized as a, as a movement of, you know, nasty people, uh, uh, young white males harassing women, uh, including women of color. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it really hurt, I think, in that way. It, it, hel- it helped in, in some very specific ways, and I, I honor that, and, and I'm glad for that. Uh, I think overall it was probably harmful for uh, the pro-life cause generally. And um, that's looking at it at the end of the, at the, end of the uh, 1980s and early in the 1990s, um, yeah, I really disagreed with the usefulness of it overall, but it was hard to disagree because I mean it did save some lives. But I had lots of discussions with uh, with Randy Terry, and uh, he was really and and I actually asked asked him this straight out. Well, what are we going? What is this going to result in? Are we going to have a civil war in this? And and uh, and he said, Yeah, I just want to intensify the conflict, and if uh, if I turn off 97 people, but three people become real warriors, then that's a net plus. Uh, 
And I, I basically disagreed with that. And I, I hope there were ways we could, we could, we would avoid having a civil war in this country if we could uh, convince a lot of people in what were, what was called the mushy middle to come over to our side. Then you would start having pro-life. You'd start having, uh, culturally people becoming pro-life. And that cultural change, uh, down the road would lead to uh, legal change, political change, um, and a lot of a lot of uh, uh, may, many fewer kids being aborted, and lots of lives being saved. So that was the that was the argument I had with with some Operation Rescue people. And again, I mean, I I, I appreciate their guts, I appreciate their intensity, and their desire to save lives. Uh, but I, I tended to go with uh, with Abraham Lincoln, uh, who talked about the importance of public opinion. So, um, yeah, that's where we were. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a happy situation at that point because the the argument was very intense. The I was involved with uh, with a, a group called uh, Fieldstead, basically a foundation in California, in developing a series of books, which were called I think the Turning Point Christian Worldview series. We eventually came out with sixteen books on a variety of subjects, and. One of the books, one of the perspective books, was about abortion, uh, and it tried to take, you know, a thoughtful look at Operation Rescue, uh, and uh, in the course of, and this is, it's funny the way this turned out, in the course of uh, discussing this, okay, we come out with this book, uh, how would people pay attention to it, what could we do? Uh, it originally, as almost a, a public relations idea, uh, someone suggested, well, what if we have a meeting of, of pro-life leaders and, you know, we'll discuss this um, and we can we can pass out copies of the book also. It, it, it almost began as that type of promotional thing. Right. But I started thinking about it. Uh, it could be something much more because what I was learning just as a as a journalist and and hearing this from various people, is that it wasn't just Operation Rescue versus the the more uh, conventional pro life movement at that time, but within that pro life movement there were just huge differences. Uh, part of it came to um, you know constitutional amendment or this or this what what the particular strategy was, but essentially there was a battle between what we came to call the all-or-something people versus the all-or-nothing people. And the all-or-nothing people said, you know, we need to have a constitutional amendment, and, you know, if people are talking about ways of saving particular children, or if people are going to legislate and say that there can be protection up to a certain, uh, protection after a certain age of gestation, uh, that's no good. We have to, it's all or nothing. And then there was the, the all-or-something people. And I just uh, gravitated, I guess, from the from the study of history that I'd done. I gravitated to the all or something people because I saw that's how it worked successfully in the 19th century to save lots of kids and actually lower the the number of abortions back then. And you know, we save as many as we can. We keep pushing. Um, Hadley Arcus, a friend of mine who was a professor at Amherst, uh, really had a you know start start at the uh, um, in a sense, start with the with the the, the, the most radical pro-abortion uh, thing, and undermine that, namely what we now call partial birth abortion. Uh, may, 
people aware of that, protect those kids, and then you start moving. Okay, if we're willing to protect kids uh, at nine months just at the time they're being born, uh, then why not eight months, why not seven months, why not five months, why not three months, and just keep moving that way? That was basically the all-or-something position. Uh, the, other, the, other, the other debate was, well, should, should you, if you're, if you're discussing this culturally or you're discussing laws, uh, should you allow any exceptions? in terms of uh, obviously protecting the health of the mother was not really a good thing a good thing to be pushing for because health was was viewed so expansively that it would allow anything but protecting the life of the mother uh, or what about you know the other classic uh, hard cases of rape and incest are you willing to have to culturally and legislatively uh, allow some exceptions and Again, the all-or-something position was, yeah, you're willing to do that, and then you keep pushing. Uh, why, why not, uh, you know, even when there's a rape? I mean, the, the child is an innocent person in that rape, so why kill that child? But keep pushing on that, just keep, keep uh, trying to increase the, the protection more and more and more kids. So that was the battle. And as it turned out, uh, this thing that started as a book promotion idea, then became, at least in my mind, and I think the minds of other people, is, this a way, is there a way that rather than pro-life people turning our fire upon each other, can we agree on some things to disagree, but really turn our fire on the pro-abortion folks? Uh, we, had a, we had a meeting in Washington in 1989, the initial meeting, where we invited people, heads of all, of all the groups, including the uh, uh, Nellie Gray from March, to Life, March for Life, uh, Judy Brown, um, uh, the uh, uh, National Right to Life people, uh, Americans United for Life, and headed, headed by Guy Condon, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, we got all these people in, in one room uh, in the uh, in the Capitol under the auspices of uh, of uh, uh, a senator at that time who was who was helpful to us, uh, and. Um, yeah, they, uh, people with differences managed to, to get along, and essentially uh, there was burying the hatchet not in each other, but uh, putting in the ground and stopping, spending less time attacking each other. Parallel in some ways to the, the, uh, the whole question of intelligent design and creationism versus evolution, uh, uh, sometimes younger Earth and older Earth people are attacking each other. Uh, they're not the enemies. Uh, there are there are other folks out there that you should concentrate on. So this happened and, and led to a series of quarterly meetings, originally called the Fieldstead Forums, and then the Life Forums. Um, uh, one person from Fieldstead chaired them initially. Uh, when I was in Washington, I, I chaired them for a year or so, and then other people, uh, Connie Marshner and, and others, uh, took over. Uh, I think that that historically made a huge difference in the pro-life movement. Uh, yeah, no, not attacking each other, and uh, um, yeah. Anyway, I could go on about it, but uh, yeah. I think that was a crucial turning point back in 1989. Coming up to the 2000s, one of the things I was very interested to ask you, because you at least peripherally knew him, uh, when was the first time you met George W. Bush? Oh, first time was in uh, uh, 1993 when he was uh, starting to run for governor. Um, Karl Rove, his political aide, 
had read this book of mine on on uh, um, helping the poor, the tragedy of American compassion, and uh, he wanted uh, George W. to be to be aware of it and some of the arguments, because that was going to be one of the arguments in the 1994 gubernatorial elections concerning uh, welfare reform. And so, yeah, we met for about an hour, and I explained um, in my uh, roundabout, not very, uh, not not well structured way, just what some of the issues were. But uh, yeah, you, uh, uh, Bush is a is a smart guy, and he understood uh, what some of these things were, and he he got it because um, you know his own his own history had been. Uh, uh, as a young man, uh, drinking pretty heavily, uh, and then he came to a to a belief in Christ, um, and that changed his life. So, if uh, uh, in poverty fighting, it's important not just to pass out some uh, some money to folks, but uh, 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 help them help them develop spiritually as well. I mean, he understood that. So, yeah, and then and then and then periodically through the uh, the nineteen nineties. Uh, we got together, and you know, as situations rose, just just talk these through a little bit. There was once he was governor in 1995. Uh, there was a an attempt by uh, Texas regulatory, an anti-alcoholism, anti-addiction organization, and uh, that's national that had a branch in San Antonio, a Teen Challenge, and. Uh, I, I wrote about that in, in World. I wrote about it on the Wall Street Journal, and suddenly, uh, and, and put in actually in, in World. I don't think I've ever done this another time, but you know, send your cards and letters to Governor George W. Bush, and here's the address. And I got a lot of mail, and um, yeah, I got a call from him. Uh, uh, just well, come over and let's talk about this. And what do I do? And yeah, we we talked it through, and that led to him uh, uh, creating a a uh, a study group that recommended three pieces of legislation that the next legislature actually passed. So that was useful. Uh, but once we had this uh, a, a certain, you know, very informal relationship, uh, I wanted to uh, talk with him about abortion uh, a little bit and uh, and get him uh, committed to some things that would be very helpful. Mm-hmm. And so. He agreed. Uh, this is this goes on. He's running for president at this point. In 1999, uh, we brought in some pro-life people, several people from around the country, just to talk with him about trying to create a culture of life. Uh, and uh, um, you know, I had I had worked there, had sort of had a plan for this hour of presentation. This person would do this, and the next person would build on it. Uh, but he really wanted to cut to the chase. Right, uh, and I think I think understood this, um, and you know what what particularly then could we propose, and actually had a had a proposal for him about uh, uh, helping crisis pregnancy centers get uh, ultrasound machines. That were somewhat of a new thing at that time. Right, right, right. When you uh, spoke to uh, George Bush, uh, now President Bush, about abortion, what was your sense of of how he felt about the issue? Because one of the things that's been unfortunate but interesting about the Republican presidents is typically, um, especially in the case of George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan, their personal conviction about abortion seems sincere, but none of their children or their wives are interested in the issue or are on our side of the fence on that issue. Right. Right. 
the um, uh, the sense I got is that is that he he understood this. Uh, he was uh, against abortion, uh, and he understood that it was a it was a primarily a cultural battle that would then have political and legislative consequences. So the proposal that uh, that he accepted that we made at this meeting in 1999 was that uh, there was um, a program, and I don't I don't I have to go back and review the specifics, but there was a program where the Fed would finance. Uh, equipment purchases for uh, uh, clinics of various kinds. And thus, within this program, the Fed could pay for uh, ultrasound machines, which, were, again, were just starting and at that point uh, expensive. Uh, a lot of our, of our small CPCs couldn't afford them, but here the Feds would uh, would pay for them, and so you'd be able to equip hundreds of centers uh, with ultrasound um, uh, much more quickly than would otherwise be the case through long and painful fundraising fundraising that was beyond the ability of some smaller groups. So, yeah, he uh, he said, you know, here's you know, here's the proposal. Uh, he said, yeah, I'm for it. I'll have my you know, staff people look into it and look into the and, and and they did. And the story I was told, he was already uh, he was he was ready to introduce this in a speech. And then the uh, day before, I think it was uh, Pat Buchanan who entered the race uh, for president. And um, you know, I, I I'd have to go back and and look. Exactly the dates of this and how that happened, but uh, but at the very last moment, this thing that he was going to propose and it was all worked out. Uh, he decided, well, now let's just shelve it for a while because we don't want it. We don't want it to seem that we're just reacting to right. someone further to the right in that sense coming in. We don't want to acknowledge that because they they had the sense that they could uh, they could roll through the primaries, and you know that's pretty much what it uh, what happened. Uh, uh, and they didn't. They did not want to be seen as as just uh, uh, responding to to some other candidate in that way. And what happened, sadly, is that it got tabled, and then other things moved on, and so it never actually became part. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean it, he wasn't he wasn't sincere? I think he was in that, but it wasn't it wasn't a uh, uh, a big thing in his mind. Uh, the way some other things were. So, uh, you know, some positives, some negatives about that. Right, yes, because er, er, on, on a previous episode of this podcast, uh, Austin Ruse of CFAM says that one of the reasons why the Trump administration at the United Nations has actually been more pro-life in terms of what the people there are trying to implement than the Bush administration was, was not because George Bush was not pro-life in his convictions, but because essentially after 9-11, his entire administration got turned into one that faced Right. Was, was was exclusively a foreign policy administration, so the compassionate conservatism thing never really got off the ground, and 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 essentially what what I've heard from some 
uh, people who got involved in Republican politics at the time is the thing that that uh, they think about a lot is what what could the Bush presidency have been if it hadn't been for the war on terror? What's your view on that? Well, uh, I wrote a lot about this at the time uh, uh, concerning the, the poverty fighting aspects that there was a a discussion among Bush advisors in 1999 and 2000, uh, there, there was there was agreement that it was important not to just have the uh, the government continuing to expand, but to uh, enable uh, and empower uh, community groups, uh, nonprofits, including churches and synagogues, uh, and and have them involved in poverty fighting. Uh, in pro-life activities, et cetera, and what could the government do to help? And there were two two different views of how to do that. One was a centralizing view, one was a decentralizing view. The centralizing view was that you would continue the grant system that you had where, the, where people in Washington would make grants to various groups, which could include crisis pregnancy centers, uh, as well as poverty-fighting groups, of other kinds, uh, but you you wouldn't really change the structure. You would just try to have better decision making on the part of the central uh, authorities in Washington, and they would not discriminate against religious groups. Uh, they would religious groups would be helped to participate by you would train them in applying for government grants. That was view number one, the centralizing view. View number two, the decentralizing view, um, was one that I tried to carry forward, and there were some other people also. Uh, and that was, yes, these groups need more funding. The way to do it is through having a charity tax credit where individuals and couples could contribute to uh, a variety of groups, whether secular or Christian or whatever religion that they could do it. It would be their choice. Uh, and they'd be able to take a certain percentage of that, much higher than a than a deduction, which might be 15 or 28 or 33 percent. But they'd be able to have a tax credit, which could be 50 percent or 75 percent, uh, and that would really help uh, groups, including crisis spring centers, get more funding, because individuals then would often calculate, well, how much how much can I afford out of pocket? And as is often the case in political campaigns, basically, uh, Bush and, and his political advisors said, okay, let's talk about both. And they did uh, during the campaign. So there was both the, the uh, creating a level playing field for federal funds that would be administered from Washington, and then also uh, empowering individuals to give more through, through charitable tax credits. Uh, the... Um, I won't go through all the details here, but the person who was who everyone thought and I thought was going to implement this um, was uh, former mayor of Indianapolis, Steve Goldsmith, who understood this very well and and basically wanted most wanted both approaches, but leaned toward the decentralist approach, or so or so he he was telling me um, uh, for a whole variety of complicated personnel and personal reasons. Uh, 
Goldsmith did not get that job. The fellow who did get the job was uh, John DiIulio, uh, a good guy uh, from the University of Pennsylvania, but John very committed to the centralizing approach. And so we administered the grants from Washington. Um, so even before 9-11, the, the faith-based initiative in Washington in its first eight months had taken a wrong turn and was getting pummeled from all sides. Christians saying, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to just become um, uh, people begging the federal government for funds. We want it decentralized. And then liberal groups complaining that religious groups should be allowed to get these funds, which previously had gone almost entirely to secular liberal groups. So, yeah, yeah I, I would like to think that, that 9-11, everything would have, would have really turned out differently, uh, apart from 9-11, but at least as far as this is concerned, I'm really not sure that's the case. It had already taken a wrong turn. What 9-11 did was basically solidified that turn and made it impossible to get it back in, in at least what I thought would be the right direction. Because uh, after that, yeah, the attention just wasn't there. It became a war administration rather than a compassionate conservative administration. Final question. Uh, Donald J. Trump is leading the Republican Party. Um, the the old Republican Party and the old consensus seems to be broken. At least it is in the minds of, of many, many analysts and commentators. And uh, the culture war seemed to be in this very strange stage where the pro-life movement is winning a lot of victories. As you know, hundreds of laws were passed on the state level during Barack Obama. But at the same time, you have the transgender phenomenon sweeping across the country. So what's your analysis of where we are and where we go from here? Well, short range, the Trump administration has... Uh, has been good for, for pro-life groups. Um, and, and just in terms of, of uh, not, not that there's been that much coming out of Washington, uh, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of useful legislation in states, uh, and Trump's pronouncements, his pro-life pronouncements have been, have been very good. Yeah, much, much stronger than, than, uh, than previous presidents. So all that is good. Uh, the problem though is more long range. Number one, if the pro-life message now is coming predominantly from a person who uh, is, is very unpopular uh, among the young particularly, but among, among lots of others, uh, is, is, that, is that helpful in the long run? Um, yes, people are, people are hearing this, but if they don't have confidence in the messenger, uh, then what? So are we, are we solidifying the pro-life groups of a minority, but uh, making them less tenable uh, among the majority? That's just one long-range concern. I don't, I'm not, I don't have a definite answer to that, but that, that really concerns me. Um, and, then, and then going broader than that, from the pro-life movement to... to uh, um, family questions generally uh, is the is the is the messenger uh, Donald Trump someone who is uh, in his personal life someone to look up to, or is this going to lead lots of people, a majority of people, to 
say, well, he's saying these things uh, for political reasons. His life, his whole history uh, belies that. Uh, the you know, politics in the United States is, is very much uh, carried into uh, or is, is very much aligned with personality. It's very strange that uh, uh, we, we send out uh, in single challengers like medieval knights, one, one candidate against another candidate, and uh, very often the, the crucial swing vote will be, will be concerned with the personality of the candidate rather than the positions or principles that's involved or, and the identities of the thousands of people then who would form his administration. So, you know, is, uh, is, is Donald Trump the single champion that we want? I mean, that's the, that's the problem. I, I like a lot of the, I like a lot of the things he's done. I also dislike some of the things he's done, uh, in terms of, uh, if we are pro-life then, but yet, uh, we are um, imprisoning kids at the border. Then what? How does that make us make us look to to lots of people who are not just judging by the words, but judging by actions? Right. So those are all problems. I am uh, I am glad that uh, we have a president who voices pro life uh, sentiments and you know does what he can to cut down on funding going to Planned Parenthood. And that is certainly um, the, the appointment of, uh, of his, his appointment of, of two judges uh, who seem to be pro-life. That's also important. It's encouraged a lot of this legislation on the local level and just encouraged pro-life people all over. Uh, you know, will they, or will these new, these two judges, uh, will they vote in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade? Maybe yes, maybe no. It would certainly be good to get rid of Roe v. Wade. That's not going to. That that would be a great, a great help. But it's not going to eliminate abortion by itself. Since again, as as I've studied historically, uh, laws have some impact, but not as much as cultural changes. So I am concerned, in other words, with with the cultural movement, uh, particularly among millennials, uh, and the way that if. The person voicing a certain pro-life sentiment is someone who is looked upon and uh, uh, as as not a good person. Then is that going to tarnish the pro-life words that this person utters? Um, short range benefit, long range, uh, I still don't know, and I am concerned. Well, Doctor Olasky, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss all these issues with us. Well, thank you, and and just just one other thought on the on this. On this question, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as as a Christian, I, I I think the the most important thing that we do, even in fighting pro life battles, we are there to save the lives of children. We are also there to to glorify God, and we hope and enjoy Him forever. Um, so anything that that leads to increased scorn for the Bible, for Christ, uh, for glorifying God, I mean, that's a problem too. So I'm just, uh, yeah, I am, I am, uh, I, I have very mixed feelings about President Trump, liking a lot of stuff, but, uh, but really concerned about the, about the long range results. Right, right. Makes sense.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Marvin Alasky, author, editor-in-chief of World Magazine and pro-life intellectual. If you want to check out any other podcasts, former podcasts, head over to lifesitenews.com and click on the podcast tab. You can get our podcast on any of the platforms where you get your podcasts. If you want to check out other important life and family news, again, you can head over to lifesitenews.com. I write a couple of columns there a week, and there's a lot of really important articles on really important issues to keep you up to date with what's going on in the culture wars. Thanks so much again for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.